Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty. I'm here with my co-hosts, Daniel Quinn and Chris Prunty. On today's episode, we are hashtag blessed to be graced with Rich Baker, legendary game designer, and he literally wrote the book on world building. So we're going to cut to that interview now. Today, we are honored to have legendary game designer, author, and all sorts of other good things, uh, Richard Baker here with us today. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you, for, for the people who might not know who you are, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Well, hey, first of all, it's, a, it's great to be here. I'm, uh, I'm Richard Baker. Uh, I have been a game designer since uh, 1991. I started with uh, TSR Incorporated way back in Wisconsin, uh, all the way uh, back in D and D Second Edition. Uh, I stayed with uh, TSR when they were uh, bought by Witches of the Coast and moved out to the Seattle area uh, and worked with Witches of the Coast until 2011. Um, and from uh, 2011 uh, until just earlier this year, uh, I was basically uh, working for myself as a uh, freelance uh, writer uh, and uh, uh, part-time owner of a small game business and, and author, um, writing my own sci-fi and stuff. Um, my day job these days is uh, I, I do some uh, writing for the Elder Scrolls Online game. Uh, and in the evenings, I'm uh, still working like uh, heck on my own uh, my own fiction. Um, during the time, uh, I, <laughs> uh, I have also uh, published a number of books, mostly... Uh, a lot of uh, novels for the Forgotten Realm setting uh, for uh, D&D, uh, plus uh, uh, my own original military sci-fi series, Breaker of Empires, um, the most recent book of which, Scornful Stars, uh, came out in December of 2019. Uh, and uh, I'm also doing some uh, uh, fiction for the Torg uh, universe uh, for uh, uh, Ulysses, um, which is a fun uh, wacky uh, multiple reality sci-fi fantasy universe, uh, uh, which uh, longtime gamers probably would uh, recognize. So, lots of fun stuff. That is that is a breadth and a half worth <laughs> of work, and my God, we have so much to get into. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I, I know that uh, a lot of people are probably really interested. In, I mean getting to work for TSR in the early nineties and seeing that transition, like how, what was that process like? How did you get started? I mean, um, well, uh, I started at TSR, uh, uh, mostly because, uh, I, uh, I had gotten out of the, uh, Navy. Uh, I was on active duty in the Navy, Navy, Naval officer from, uh, 88 to 91. And when I was getting out of the service, um, you know, seeing as we pretty much won the Cold War and taken care of Saddam Hussein the first time around, I figured my work was done. Um, <laughs> I uh, was sending resumes out to, uh, you know, uh, everybody, you know, way back in the day when you'd actually like send people paper resumes. Uh, so I said, you know what, I'm just going to waste a stamp and I'm going to send a resume to TSR Incorporated for the pure hell of it because, boy, I like D&D and sure it would be fun to be a writer. Um, and to my surprise, they they... Uh, actually answered my unsolicited resume and said, well, hey, here's a design test. They sent me a a complete Vikings handbook, second edition, uh, one of the historical reference books. You might remember the green leather ones they had. Uh, and they said, uh, and we're going to give you a design test, uh, write a 2,000-word uh, encounter based on material in this book. So I was like, 
Awesome. I am up a complete Vikings handbook. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, whatever I wrote, they appeared to like it well enough. They brought me out out for an interview. And uh, uh, a few months after I got out of the Navy, I started at TSR as a, uh, as a game designer and went on to um, begin. uh, uh, I did uh, my very first project was uh, the Spelljammer source book, Rock of Brawl. And then I moved on and did a lot of work in Dark Sun uh, in second edition. And, uh, you know, hey, as they say, the rest is history. And it's a long and storied history for sure. So like, you know, TSR is something that's really near and dear to my heart because that's where I started was like right on the cusp between second and third edition. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So I've got a lot of questions for you. I tried to narrow them down. Um, (laughs) The first question is more of a culture and kind of proto internet question. And that time, you know, we're talking before 2000 for a lot of our listeners who are a lot younger. Um, you know, they're used to being always on the web. So what was it like, you know, working on products like the Wizard Spell Compendium or any of the really huge, um, you know, books that were produced by TSR back then without the internet, without sophisticated technology, you know, and you had to rely just on what was in your grasp, basically? Um, we actually had a, a, a fairly significant library um, in the in the TSR building. Uh, we had two of them actually. One was a game library, um, which obviously was you know full of all sorts of you know our own stuff and and competitor stuff. So we'd always be in there at lunchtimes playing uh, playing games. Uh, <laughs> we we also had a a pretty big reference library that had been assembled by SPI, uh, a war game company that TSR had bought in the late eighties, um, and there was some weird stuff in there. Uh, so for example, when I was researching guns for the original alternative game. Uh, I found a book uh, in there uh, called uh, uh, entitled uh, To Ride, To Shoot, and To Speak the Truth. And it was written by a guy who was like a professional mercenary. And he had gone all over the world and like fought like in the, you know, like the Congolese Civil War. <laughs> and he was like, you know, just crazy stuff, right? And this guy had the habit of like referring to everybody that he, all the bad guys he ever fought is like uh, orcs and goblins. It's like, you'll be, you'll be reading this guy. And he's like, well, you might be out there in the field and all of a sudden two orcs kind of jump up with acre 47s and you're, you're going to need to drop them in a hurry. So then he'd get to the stopping power, you know, arguments about different sorts of pistols. And it's like, all right, this guy is, is nuts, but it's really interesting. <laughs> I'm speechless, but also I'm thinking of that Warren Zevon song, Rolling the Headless Thompson. Oh yeah. Rolling the Headless Gutter. Yeah. 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 And I'm like, oh, it's that guy. It's basically yeah. that guy from the song. <laughs> it really was. It really was. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> so, so the massive library, I imagine, helped a lot. I, I remember uh, listening to a lot of commentary on The Simpsons, you know, like comedy book uh, or the comedy room. And they're basically, look, we had like six guys and two knew a lot about baseball. One knew a lot about science. And that's <laughs> kind of where we started. I imagine that, you know, in, in TSR, it wasn't probably that much larger of a team than a, than a writer's room. Uh, uh, it was yeah. actually a pretty sizable department. We, we, at one point, we had, I think, uh, close to 30 uh, writers and editors all in the creative department. Wow. So pretty, pretty good size. Bigger than a typical writer's room, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's, that's much larger than anticipated. So, uh, again, this is like late no- – or this is early 90s that you're joining on. So you've kind of missed the – wave of cocaine that the 80s have brought on and i'm sure that was rampant in tsr at the time uh, <laughs> so, I, I, uh, I i gotta say like one of the very first things uh the very first day i went to work uh, uh a couple of my co-workers took new co-workers took me out to lunch 
um, uh, Bill Connors and Dave Sutherland, uh, and uh, they, you know, took me out to lunch. We went to the Pizza Hut in Lake Geneva, and I said, "Okay, guys, I'm just curious because I've never heard the story. What's really the deal? What happened with Gary? <laughs> why, why is he no longer the man in charge here?" And, and and so I got that was I didn't get the whole story until I actually worked there. You know, I got it the first day I I, I was there at, over lunch. Oh my God, that's crazy! It's yeah. like cryptic um, knowledge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. I'm not sure how much you're allowed to disclose. You said earlier you can't talk about the Elder Scrolls, but more of writing in another setting that uh, is someone else's. Like, do you have to sit out and do a bunch of research on it? Do, is there like a creative team there that is like it's just like oh well that's not lore friendly or anything? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There. Um, I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school uh, when I say that, uh, uh, you know, they're very, very serious about uh, really maintaining the lore, uh, not just within uh, Elder Scrolls Online, but also in respects to uh, the various other uh, Elder Scrolls games and, and, and the whole family of, of properties there. Obviously, they, there's been a lot of console games uh, that aren't uh, take place in different time eras than Elder mm-hmm. Scrolls Online, uh, and we're always... Uh, uh, looking at what's been done there and making sure we're not stepping on uh, any toes. So yeah, one of the one of my coworkers actually has the official job title of lore master. <laughs> oh, that's an awesome job title. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean it's uh, it, there's something they take seriously. Uh, and obviously, uh, a lot of times, anytime I'm writing uh, something that that has any implications uh, uh, for for the setting, I'm digging in and being very careful uh, about what I'm coming up with. So I'm assuming that there's some kind of like a setting Bible or like a guideline or, a, or like a house rules type thing. Can oh, you yeah. tell yeah. us about like the thickest setting book that you've ever seen? Like these are the guidelines, like this is the gospel, or is that something that's maybe we should skip? Um, no, that's okay. I, I think actually the uh, probably the biggest, most thorough one that I can remember was uh, the Forgotten Realms Bible. Oh boy. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, and the reason was uh, not because we necessarily felt like there was that much stuff that we were anxious about contradicting. It was more a matter of the fact that uh, Ed Greenwood is a human volcano of of knowledge and and interests, and just kept you know producing over the course of the, his association with the you know that property. Just this immense amount of uh, in many cases just trivia <laughs> about the realms, right? Like you know how do they brush their teeth? Well. Doesn't come up in gameplay very often, but you know, if you asked it, how do people brush their teeth in the realms? Uh, he would have answers. And you know what? And they'd be different for different countries, right? Wow. Yeah. Well, in Luskin, of course, they do this, but over in the Dale Lands, they instead do blah 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 blah. It's like, and that's just the stuff yeah. that made the Bible that you had to read. Like, the <laughs> war, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, in in fact, the, you know, the funny thing is, in a lot of ways. Uh, 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 you know, Jeff Grubb, when he, you know, was the, the guy who put together that, uh, that first uh, Forgotten Realms box, you know, uh, the huge mass of, of his job, frankly, was looking at this amazing amount of material that Ed had created over the years for, you know, his, his, you know, his, his, his fantasy world and trying to figure out how to organize and present it and, and what parts of that could, you know, needed to be in the book and, and what parts, you know, uh, didn't need to be in the book. But, uh, even after the, you know, the gray box back in the day had come out, you know, we still had this Bible that was probably the size of a small phone book, uh, you know, of 
hey, if there's something that you really need to know, you can probably go and dig around in here and see if it's been touched on or or what we think we know about it. Man, I, I don't know how to phrase this, but one of the major reasons that I was so excited at talking to you is that you, you're you literally the, the writer for how to world build. Is that correct? <laughs> That's correct. <laughs> yeah. I did. I, I wrote in the mid-90s a book called the, uh, the, the World Builder's Guidebook. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously on a podcast like World Build With Us, I mean, you can tell that we're pretty excited. Uh, but given that you've developed like Forgotten Realms, uh, Birthright, Alternity, you've worked on Planescape, Ravenloft, uh, and and the literal book on how to world build. <laughs> Can you give us like your top two tips on world building? Um, my top two tips. Uh, I know that's I know that's an yeah. incredibly broad question, but like, <laughs> I always I always like to point them out. Like each, most people tend to have pillars that they look at when it comes to world building. Some people prefer culture. Some people prefer magic systems. You know, mechanics over over setting and whatnot. I just kind of want to know what your process is, or at least your you, now, I suppose, because things change. Sure, sure. I mean, the, in terms of approach, uh, the two bits of advice I would give right up front is uh, it's perfectly fine to start small and build a micro setting, build a town, build a dungeon, and and work out from there. Don't feel like you have to design the whole world from uh, from you know the whole continents first before you can even get started. The uh, the second thing I would point out is it's uh, it's perfectly fine in a lot of cases to to build do your world building like a oh like the way uh, uh, Hollywood builds a movie set right you only have to build the pay attention to the parts that that face the players right if the players aren't going to see something it's behind the facade are you saying that we don't need to learn how to brush our teeth in different <laughs> exactly exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Um, I'll add a third point too. And this is actually something that, uh, I think I've figured out since then, I probably would have made a bigger effort to put in the world builders guidebook if I had known it, uh, back in the mid nineties. Um, the tricky bit about, uh, uh, RPG settings is you don't know who the heroes are really, right? Because the heroes are the player characters and that's, uh, uh, you have really no idea at any given table, what sorts of people are showing up and are, are playing in your game. Um, so instead of necessarily, uh, spending a lot of time and effort designing, uh, what you think the heroes are, although sometimes it's useful to be able to answer the question, who are the heroes in the world of what they, they do, uh, is, is kind of useful to know. Um, start with the bad guys. Do you have a great idea for a villain? Do you have a great idea for a, a, a monster species of villains? Um, you know, for a, a, a culture or a society that could be really bad guys and, and fun to fight against. Um, you would be amazed at how much of your world building can hang on just a, a good distinctive set of bad guys and, and people that your players will come to know and appreciate and really dislike will, will, uh, uh, buy you a whole lot of, uh, a whole lot of time to work out the details. That is probably one of them. That, that bit right there is so astute and so like, in line with what I'm excited about when it comes to world building. I mean, we, we often talk about, you know, what should or should not go into settings and everything like that. And when it comes to stuff that's truly vile, especially when there are real world consequences to such things, I always say that's like, sometimes you want that little bit of vileness in there just so you can have the heroes come and smash it. 
Like, yeah, I, I always find it so important. Like there's a reason that Nazis make it into every like superhero book. And it's not just because of the history there. It's also because, you know, what's really fun punching Nazis in the face. No one ever. Th- Nazis are the orc equivalent. <laughs> the superhero setting no one ever feels bad about that i sort of feel that and uh yeah and and i've so far managed to kind of refrain from a lot of the huge debates on this because man uh it is tough to get involved in social media debates these days but uh i think actually the core fantasy of D uh is the idea or any fantasy world or action-based property is the idea that um evil can be solved by punching it. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in our own world, I mean, yeah, sometimes you're, you know, uh, you know, we, we, you know, have to invade Normandy and we can tell ourselves we're on a, a righteous crusade to, uh, to liberate Europe. And that's mostly correct, but mm-hmm. it's just, you know, everything is, is fraught with consequences and unintended consequences and, and hard choices and, and compromises. And the beauty and simplicity of, of an RPG is you can make the world, better and pretend that you can make the world better by just defeating a bad guy physically and walking away and saying that guy's not a problem anymore that's a that's a wonderful bit of uh, flight of fantasy to be able to indulge in and you know it makes a world simple and and heroic and there's a sense of accomplishment there like there's no like oh i have to worry about the implications of defeating the grand lich narzul it's like no i can just defeat him and his armies and then things will get better there's the implication of yeah the the happy ending right whereas if this were real life guess what you'd probably have to get stuck into you know uh, dozens of years rebuilding narzul's fallen lich kingdom you know like (laughs) There is something about RPGs that is like I was talking about with, with comic books earlier. I mean, there's something simple about that. You know, it's like you don't have to worry about the implications anymore. And also don't ever feel bad about getting into a conversation on social media. As someone who has a podcast, social media <laughs> is a cesspool. Um, <laughs> like, like well and truly I've, I've never felt comfortable having meaningful conversations on Twitter or even Facebook, because I really don't feel like you get the same impact, you know, online as though, as though you're having an actual phone call or conversation face to face. I just don't really feel like it's there nearly. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like on the subject of what RPGs are, um, you wrote once, I have a long held belief that D and D is not actually a game. It's a simulation. Games have objectives and winning conditions and simulations are imaginary worlds defined only by a set of physics. And you were talking to some degree about the differences between, um, you know, first, second, even bits of third edition as a transition to fourth and modern RPGs. Could you tell us a little bit about what you meant by RPG as simulation and how you view the RPG as different than your average game? Um, sure. Uh, and, and boy, that's actually a, that <laughs> I, I have had that thought uh, a few times. I was mostly <laughs> arguing uh, uh, this came up in the context uh, in uh, examining, like uh, you know, design of, of uh, like third edition D anD D and fourth edition D anD D, and and kind of comparing and contrasting. Um, uh, and and this is actually, uh, if you want to dig up a fascinating uh, and probably mostly dead thread, uh, you know, somewhere on the internet, uh, it's the the metaphor of D anD D as football or D anD D as war. 
And if you look at D&D as football, you realize that, you know, okay, we all agree that, uh, you know, we're going to uh, play, uh, try to uh, get the football into the end zone by doing things such as lining up and running a play and realizing that people can stand only in certain places. And if people are standing in the wrong places, we can't run the play. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not going to do things like uh, calling an airstrike on the other team and then walk the ball over to the goal line over their smoldering corpses and say, <laughs> what? <laughs> right? Because that wasn't the goal. The goal was to have fun, to have a competition, right? D&D mm-hmm. is, oh, it might have been D&D is competition as opposed to war, right? Mm-hmm. And and fourth edition really, I think, embraces the D&D as competition uh, philosophy because uh, many of the the, uh, the balance features of fourth edition and the way um, different uh, character abilities work uh, between like the at will powers and the encounter powers, things like that. A lot of those are designed to present a uh, here's a fun scenario uh, in which you try to see how you can maximize your usage of your character's powers uh, by coloring within the lines and, and to produce a to play a game and see if you can uh, win the game. Uh, D&D is simulation uh, is the idea that um, there is no particular endpoint. There is no particular win condition. There is no recommended method where we say you are doing it right if you do it this way or doing it wrong if you do it the other way. Um, in the in the D&D as a uh, simulation philosophy, you might uh, have the question of, well, uh, okay, there's, so there's a evil fortress filled with orcs. Uh, and we need to retrieve an artifact from it. Um, as a game, you might look around and say, well, okay, we know that the the gamified D&D is built all around um, having uh, interesting, challenging fights and, and looking to maximize our advantages in those, in those fights uh, and maybe looking for a way to fight our way to the fortress and get the artifact. Mm-hmm. Uh, D&D Simulation uh, does things like, let's see if we can capture an important orc, hit him <laughs> with a dominate person spell, and send them in to go get the artifact to bring it out to us. That's fine. Right? That, <laughs> that's I fun mean, part. Right? That's a that, that's the, the simulation. Did you mm-hmm. actually have a meaningful encounter? Did you test your, your abilities? No, mm-hmm. you ruthlessly found the one effective strategy that makes you not have the fun fight. <laughs> <laughs> but would actually be the, the what a smart, intelligent, thinking person working under this set of physics, and I use mm-hmm. physics in quote marks, might do to try to otherwise, you know, uh, maximize the situation to his advantage. Well, that's so helpful. I really like the use of the term physics to to mean kind of the set of conditions that simulate the reality that, that you're talking about. Right, exactly. I mean, it, 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 the, the physics, I, I borrowed that yeah. absolutely from, uh, from uh, you know, uh, uh, the digital world, right? You know, when they mm-hmm. talk about the game engines and, and physics of the game engine, you know, that's... Uh, that's totally where I, I got that terminology from. You're bringing up like threads from the old Wizards of the Coast forums from way back in like <laughs> my freshman high school days. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm getting like deep nostalgia for that old, ugly, like early 2000s kind of web, that web forum. I'm, I, I, I don't know. I, just, I, I have no reason to bring that up except to say thank you for that. <laughs> As more and more games seem to move away from the crunch that I see that everything was founded on. Uh, what's your opinion on as that kind of becomes more of the norm? Do you miss the crunch? Are you more embracing of it? Um, 
when I uh, first started as as a, a designer, I was uh, very crunch favorable. Um, I, I recognize that a lot of our audience uh, was very interested in in diving into the deep end of simulation, or at least feeling like they were simulating something, uh, and having many options and very crunchy options available to them for character builds and and um, character options. Uh, I have uh, come to appreciate lighter games. Uh, you know, in in uh, the last uh, well. <laughs> you know, 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it is, just because of the time uh, constraint, right? It, it takes a lot more time to crunch a game, uh, to prep a game that's going to be crunchy than it does to prep a game that's going to be uh, kind of light and more freewheeling and more friendly for, uh, you know, for improvisation. Uh, I sort of feel that in some ways, uh, I do like D&D 5e um, quite a lot, uh, but most of the people I play with are still uh, playing in variations of uh, third edition or Pathfinder because they're guys who still like the crunch. Um, I sort of feel that, you know, if, if D&D 5e had been completely in my hands, I think I would have tried to go for a, a best of all editions uh, vibe where we might take some, some good lessons from fourth edition and good lessons from third edition and good lessons from second edition and try to wrap those all up and, and make that the, the state of the D&D the game. I think there's things that fourth edition did very well, for example, as much as we tend to look back and deride it, uh, uh, I think somewhat unfairly, uh, boy, you know, fourth edition was easy to DM. Um, <laughs> and running monsters in fourth edition was a fun thing for the DM to do, uh, more so than running monsters in 5e is for uh, the DM, because the monsters in 5e are, are, you know, the design of monsters is getting better and more thorough, but, you know, uh, at least out the gate, uh, they just didn't do much other than uh, be bags of hit points and damage. Um, whereas 4E was some of the, the scripting that you could accomplish with uh, monster powers and monster roles, I think made setting up interesting fights uh, much easier in the 4E world. I, I do love that idea because as, as much as I disliked 4th edition, I played it and there are certain things from it that are just really brilliant in terms of design. And in term and and like you were saying, very much underappreciated. I think what you're seeing now, especially, is and, and your your criticism of fifth edition is dead on in that regard, where fifth edition feels like you're hitting it with a with a random stick, and your the enemies are just kind of hitting you back with a, a a different shaped stick, whether it be a spell or a sword or something like that. Rambling aside, what I've been seeing is this movement more towards a kind of cinematic direction when it comes to enemies and monster design. You know, I, when you were talking about fourth edition with the idea that once something is bloodied, the battle changes, right? And regardless of the mechanics of that, that's exciting. That's exciting for the players and exciting for the DM because now, you know, it's it's a real indicator that something in the battle has changed, something about this encounter has demonstrably changed. I just wanted to ask you, have you ever heard of Matt Colville? Uh, yeah, I think we actually very briefly uh, worked together. I think he was part of the uh, Last Unicorn Games um, mm -hmm. way back in the day. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and there was a, there was a brief uh, time of a few months where um, Wizards of the Coast uh, 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 bought out the those guys Um uh, for uh, for a bit, mostly because I think they were trying to get their hands on one of the licenses that uh, Last Unicorn had, 
and it just didn't work out. And we just, you know, they, they were spun off to do their own thing. But uh, yeah, so we were very briefly coworkers. That's so uh, he, he's been, uh, he's been really great on YouTube lately uh, and in general, I'm sure he's a fabulous person, but um, more importantly, he, he had this video that talks about uh, enemy design and how it's more about story beats and how that yeah. makes the game a lot more interesting. And that's the kind of thing that I would love to see more of is less, you know, hit, you know, roll dice back and forth kind of to varying effect, but also just like, no, this is going to be a unique, interesting encounter that's different and fits the story and the monster. Yeah, I, 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 I do agree with that. Um, and, and story beats is a great way of putting it, right? That, that a fight is a story, right? It's a dialogue in a lot of ways. Um, and you want there to be uh, noteworthy and distinguishable parts of the dialogue uh, where, where people get a chance to, to make a statement. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I think anyone who's a fan of boxing or mixed martial arts can sit there and pick apart a fight and be like, oh, well, look at, you know, like he kept hitting him with leg kicks and then you finally see how that ended up working you know, or, or actually more aptly, probably professional wrestling, you know, like when you're, when you're hitting someone in a particular part, so you can hit them with the finishing move later on. I mean, is that's like the drama and the excitement, you know, and the analysis that you have through the fight is. So I wanted to draw some attention to your ridiculously long uh, writing history and <laughs> <in> that <laughs> we, we have a man under a hundred years old who has 17 novels and many more coming, I'm sure. Um, but what I think is really interesting in your story is how you started writing and that, and if I, if I have the count right, you had an initial novel called Kingslayer that didn't get published and then two other novels that got, um, um, axed by oh um, gosh yes yeah so can you talk about <laughs> that and also like how how did you manage to continue writing like why did how did that not crush your aspiring author spirit so future writers can also know how to survive <laughs> well um so the first book i i, I wrote um I, I started it uh shortly after uh graduating from college so i was working on it during my during my navy days um uh kingslayer wound up being a Oh, I don't know, like a 220,000 word fantasy epic. Um, and, you know, I I will say this. I mean, uh, if I were to go back and look at it now, I would think it's probably not terribly good. But <laughs> the the process of writing a book from, from start to the end uh, teaches you what it takes to write a book, um, right? It, it teaches you the discipline of writing, the necessity of chipping away at it, at it every uh, every. T- you know, uh, uh, routinely sticking to a schedule, uh, learning how to not get hung up on getting something exactly right the first time and to trust the revision process so that you, you know, keep making progress. And, and I tell myself even to this day all the time, if I'm hung up on a, uh, you know, a tough chapter or a tough scene, you know, I, I say, okay, let's just, let's just assume rich that you were smarter a couple of months ago when you worked on the outline you know, stick to the outline, just make it happen. And we can always come back and, and look at this again and, and improve it. But rather than, you know, try to find the exact right word, just get a word in place and, and keep moving. You can always come back and, and make it better. Um, so yeah, Kingslayer, I, I, I wrote the book. Um, I shopped it around, uh, uh, 
probably very wisely. Uh, no particular agent or publisher wanted anything to do with it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I did actually manage to uh, teach myself something about what it takes to write a book. And, and later on, I was able to incorporate some elements uh, of the world I'd, I'd come up with for Kingslayer in the birthright setting. Um, and then uh, speaking of the birthright setting, uh, the first two novels I, I wrote that uh, were uh, going to be published were actually had, had uh, a contract and a publication date um, were uh, uh, The Falcon and the Wolf um, mm-hmm. for the birthright setting and The Shadowstone for the birthright setting. Now, the funny story about The, the Falcon and the Wolf is uh, as TSR was gearing up to launch the birthright setting, I could kind of tell, hey, sooner or later, they're going to want to have a fiction line to go with this world setting because that's just the way TSR was rolling at the time. You know, hey, there was Forgotten Realms you know, the, the setting, there was Forgotten Realms, the, the, the novels. There, uh, you know, uh, darks on the setting, darks on the novels. If we're doing a new uh, a new world, we're going to want to do a full court press and see both novel, you know, fiction and and game products for this. So I was down and uh, Brian Thompson, our, our uh, TSR's editor at the time, uh, uh, managing editor, I was down at his office, uh, uh, you know, uh, every couple days, you know, you know, hey, 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 I want to chance to write one of the one of the novels for this setting and and you know brian you know first couple of times well we're actually not planning on doing fiction and and sure enough the day came around that i had long foreseen where they said hey uh, change of plans we've now been told we're going to do fiction for the line and i ran i was like great hey i'm ready to go and and they told me hey we're sorry but you know you're 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 unpublished you've never uh, been published as an author we have to we have to go with somebody that we can that we trust oh. as, as, as who has a history and I was like, you know, because at this point we need to have it done in, you know, mm-hmm. four and a half, five months. I was like, well, if you had just let me do it months ago when I told you I was, I was ready to write a book for this setting, we wouldn't be in this situation. But And, and it's all about marketability at that point, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and once again, you know, I, I, I look back on the Falcon and the Wolf and it's like, okay, it was certainly better than Kingslayer, but I, I could do better than that, mm-hmm. you know, you know, now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, sure enough, uh, eventually four books into the birthright book line, um, after several other established authors had had a chance to, to do, uh, novels for birthright, um, they finally gave me a whack, uh, at, at getting a birthright book and I did the Falcon and the Wolf and they liked it enough that they gave me, uh, the Shadowstone, uh, the opportunity to do the Shadowstone next. Uh, and Shadowstone, I think in a lot of ways is the, the first decent book I wrote, <laughs> you know, so. So that's the message is, hey, you know, third time's a charm, right? <laughs> Don't give up, basically. <laughs> Don't give up. You get better. At, you know, uh, practice makes perfect, right? You know, repetition, muscle memory, whatever it is. Eventually, you kind of start figuring out what you need to do. Um, uh, so, yeah, Falcon and the Wolf and the Shadowstone were kind of both in the hopper. And we're in the, the production pipeline for uh, uh, for publication. Uh, and uh falcon the wolf was scheduled for publication late 96 and shadowstone for middle 97 and then of course uh at the end of 96 uh tsr uh went into vapor lock and stopped publishing because you know they had a complete money crunch and just you know were yeah the wheels are coming off the cart so my my book got delayed and uh shortly after uh wizards of the coast bought tsr and they came around and looked at the you know the the slate of of novels that were in the works and and where the different parts of the business were 
uh, they made the decision that the birthright book line was uh, not profitable. And so, yes, in one awful meeting at which I was not present, <laughs> they uh, said, well, we're just going to cancel all the rest of these. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Oh, heartbreaking. Yeah. heartbreaking. God. Oh, God. Uh, I will yeah. say this. Uh, Brian Thompson uh, uh, left the meeting at that point. And before anybody else did anything, uh, he came and told me in person, I'm really, oh. really sorry. Here's what happened. It's like killing a baby right in front of you. Yeah. So, I mean, oh, uh, cool uh, yeah, there are uh, some of my uh, some of my coworkers had a hard time working with Brian, but uh, I always appreciated that. Uh, he was willing to, to to put a stop to the meeting and say, "I have to go tell this guy now. I'm not going to have this come around to Rich from some other direction." That's wow. a real decent human right there. I yeah, mean that genuinely. Guy. That's yeah, yeah. That's seriously, yeah. To my understanding, your why D and D has feats and everything. Did you know it was going to be such a huge <laughs> thing, or did it what, did it just take off? Um, did I know it was going to be a huge thing? Uh, initially, I would say uh, no. I didn't know it was going to be as big as it be, as it was, but I certainly recognized that it was going to be a very significant uh, part of the game uh, very early on. Um, Feats grew out of uh, an idea when uh, Monty Cook, Skip Williams, and myself were doing the initial uh, design work on on third edition, um, and we got around. To, we were evaluating like every single system in second edition. Uh, you know, literally going through the player's handbook and DM guide like page by page, and saying, "How should this thing here on this page work in the the new edition we're creating?" And the thing it's that feet started off with uh, that was a answer to the question of what are non-weapon proficiencies uh for those had popped up like in the oh gosh the dungeoneer survival guide in first edition uh, we came to realize that there were some of those that were uh kind of you know pointless or were not things that people would make mechanical investments in if they had any concern at all about their character being good and there were others that were definitely good um, and and seen more valuable, so we kind of sorted those out at that time into, uh, you know, skill, you know, uh, uh, proficiencies and super proficiencies, and and yeah, it was my idea when looking at the super proficiencies and saying, you know, I think there's actually a whole bunch of like combaty type stuff we could bolt into these, you know, for like combat styles and, and tactics, and and I wrote up a proposal and kind of came back, and and many of the uh, many of the feats that were, you know, in the third edition, you know, from the outset, like the power check chain, um, uh, the mounted combat chain, you know, things like that uh, came from that initial, uh, you know, system proposal doc that I uh, that I created. Although I had uh, lots of uh, funny placeholder names on them. So, for example, Spring Attack in my proposal mm-hmm. document was known for uh, many months as Sucks to be You. <laughs> I'd rather that name. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I agree. I'd much rather that name. It's it's kind of like um, when you see certain skills in other RPGs that are like, oh, you don't roll to attack, you roll to murder. You know. Like always... <laughs> Before we roll into the world build jam, Rich, I do have to ask because you're the author or at least co-author of two of my favorite adventures of all time, uh, which is uh, Forge of Fury and the Red Hand of Doom. And awesome. I, yeah, the, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna a little bit of inside baseball here. 
I emailed you because I was going through my RPG books and I pulled out Forge of Fury and I was like, man, I fucking love this adventure. And I looked down, I'm like, I should interview Rich Baker. That sounds like a cool <laughs> that that is actually the reason I emailed you in the first place. I mean, to 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 start up. But but anyway, I want to ask, how do you infuse so much flavor and ecosystem and world building in the adventures that you have there? Is it any different? than writing a book? And if so, how? Uh, well, it, it's certainly different than writing a book just because uh, when you're working on a novel, uh, uh, you have a character to work with, right? You have a point of view. Um, uh, you have somebody who uh, is making decisions and you know what decisions they're going to make. Uh, in the case of, of writing an adventure, uh, you are building a, a set and and casting a villain and then stepping back to see what somebody comes and does when they step in to ad lib the role of, of being the hero. You have no idea what they're going to do or how they're going to do it. Mm. Um, it. It could be anything. Uh, so it is a little bit different. But uh, once again, I mean, I think it's a matter of, of you know, uh, concentrating on the stuff that, that's player facing, uh, looking for distinctive villains, um, looking for distinctive monsters. What I have often done when I'm confronted with writing adventures, I actually, uh, crazy as it sounds, because I know I've, I've written some adventures that are very highly regarded. I kind of don't really like writing adventures because it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's difficult. It really is. It's, it's a very challenging form of writing. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's hard to write a good adventure, uh, at least for me anyway. Some people do it uh, maybe more easily. Um, but my, my step would usually be to kind of sit down when I'm confronted with a task. I was looking at my schedule. Well, I guess I got to work on this now. Um, I would try to close my eyes and sit back and think, okay, what haven't I seen done quite yet? What's, what's an adventure that I think we haven't seen a lot of recently? You know, what's a, uh, so Forge of Fury was part of the early third edition, uh, return to the dungeon, uh, motif, right? Where, uh, many adventures that came out, uh, a couple of guys, uh, in, in the creative department, like, uh, myself and Monty Cook and, a uh, a couple of other, uh, folks were, you know, pretty committed to the idea that uh, D&D had gotten away from the dungeon towards the end of second edition. And mm -hmm. we were trying hard to kind of bring it back and steer it in that direction. Um, so uh, right around the time of the end of second edition, beginning of third edition, uh, we were trying to work on crafting good, well done dungeon crawls and make them things that people would remember and enjoy. Um, I, I think that you definitely succeeded. Um, I, I've never run full dungeons like wholesale, but I can tell you for sure that I've stolen more from you than most, I'd probably say. <laughs> uh, and speaking of, uh, we are now at the part of our interview where we're going to roll into the world building jam. Awesome. This, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for this because the way that this is going to work is we have our handy little worksheet that we have here. We're going to roll some dice and then we're going to create a scenario based on those dice rolls. So first, we're going to roll the genre, whether it be between science fiction, fantasy, horror, modern day, romance, or a new one, a superhero genre. Uh, we also have the subject, whether it be an item, a monster, a place, a historical figure, an event, or a combination of the two. Then we have the theme, which is madness, sacrifice, love, metamorphosis, Pride and Honor, The Unspeakable, Triumph, and finally Hope. So we're going to start there. And then once all that's done, 
We're going to create a little bit of a scenario and then we're going to roll on the twist table to fuck up all of our hard work. So <laughs> first things first, we're going to roll for the genre, which is uh, superhero. How about that? Okay. All right. Uh, and for the subject, we have, let's see, that's a, a, mo uh, a monster. And then we have the theme, which is the unspeakable. Oh. All right, Rich. So we have a superhero genre. We have uh, a monster and then the unspeakable as the theme. So as the guest, you have the first digs. So please, by all means, go right ahead. Uh, I think uh, this, you know, based on those three things, um, Justice League versus Cthulhu. <laughs> yes. Oh, right. Uh, okay. You know, I mean, uh, uh, we don't see, uh, I mean, we do see superheroes fighting monsters uh, pretty often with, you know, things like werewolves and vampires. Vampires and super uh, are certainly present in uh, DC and Marvel comics and things like that. Um, but when you threw in the unspeakable twist, I, I initially, I immediately ran towards Lovecraft and it's like, I don't think I've seen a mashup of superheroes and Cthulhu Lovecrafty type stuff, which is really fascinating because those seem like two giant genres and I'm surprised they haven't, haven't been mashed together yet by somebody. So, so that's where well, I, 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 I love the start because you're right. Because I think that the, the major takeaway from both is like superheroes, especially are often some kind of a power fantasy. And when it comes to Lovecraftian literature, it often comes down to stripping away any power in the face of the endless void of the cosmos, right? So yeah. how do you take someone who is a god on their planet and strip away all of that power and force them to face the endless ocean of stars? I mean, <laughs> Superman can be affected by magic, so is Cthulhu well, magic? Right. Cthulhu is, uh, is beyond magic, so I'm going to say yes for in the terms of getting around his damage reduction type, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but more importantly, like what, what kind of a monster are we going to create here that is you know, Lovecrafty in, in design and also maybe preys on superheroes? What do you think? Uh, something dimensional that objects to superheroes messing around with time travel and teleportation. Because that's Ooh. a staple in a lot of uh, a lot of superhero stories, you know. So, if uh, if a Hound of Tendalos came looking for the Flash after <laughs> after he you know zips off to go mess with the past, or the, you know, like he does sometimes, you know, I, I think that'd be kind of interesting. I, I think. Oh, go ahead, Daniel. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think another concern with, especially with Cthulhu-esque beings, is that superheroes generally fighting villains who have coherent. Um, uh, plans and motivations and wants, whereas Cthulhu is generally um, described as an entity that does has an un, un, unknowable intent and that it's completely indifferent to humankind. So I think one of the challenges these superheroes would face is the fact that their enemy um, just isn't really interested in them and the destruction it causes is completely incidental because it sees them as ants. You know, or if, not even ants, right? If it's a question <laughs> of... Uh, um, Oh, I'm thinking of like the, the Lovecraft story, The Crawling Chaos, uh, yes. which kind of mm -hmm. describes the world essentially going mad because uh, Nyarlathotep has, has come into the world and is preaching mm -hmm. a, a message of, uh, of insanity that is catching like wildfire in the population, right? People are just going nuts. 
Yes. So if you put the superheroes in a world where they're trying to protect the world, but the world is destroying itself because of the madness imposed on it by mm -hmm. this invasion of creatures that they can't necessarily punch or find or even uh, perceive, uh, I, there, there's definitely something there. Exactly. Oh, for sure. And then I think if you wanted to bring it back to, you know, the, the way that you were manipulating time and space, the idea of this being something that, you know, the flash brought with him, you know, like it just so happened to, you know, he, he tore through a part of space time that was just so happened to be infected by madness or something like that. And it's a matter of you are now a plague bringer unto the universe that you have seen that you've never seen before. Something that existed before time. <laughs> you know, it's, oh, a, man. It, it's a little bit of a riff, but uh, um, the Star Trek Next Generation episode where uh, Lieutenant Barkley is scared of the thing in the transporter beam. Man, that was really creepy, right? It was a story device that everyone was just so comfortable with that you never gave it a second look <laughs> until you know, Barkley started seeing horrible things come out of it, right? Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I like I like the idea of an encounter with the unknown kind of piggybacking its way and infecting the, the rational world and the, dis disentangling it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so what's the affliction? I don't want it to just be random rage virus. So, <laughs> let, so let's, let's kind of workshop that idea a little bit more. What what's the affliction that this madness is causing? You see the finality of everything, or you are able to see people as both being a dead and alive, and so you no longer view them as people, really. Oh, lack of empathy. I mean, it's it's a matter of your your shifting of time and perspective, right? Uh, may, or maybe it's something even simpler than that. Like you don't see things in like a, or, or like you see things as an infrared or something like that. But I think that. I think Chris's idea is certainly much stronger than that. Why would I save them? It's meaningless. They'll just die in 30 years anyway. Apathy. Oh, oh <laughs> when you look at everyone and you've already seen them dead because you watched how they die. Oh, oh I God. like that. Yeah. That's horrifying. It's Jesus. like a future site everyone suddenly has and they kind of give up and then cities start to fall apart and the superheroes, they can't use their powers to save them. They have to figure some other way to do that. Overwhelming apathy at the face of the inevitable. Yeah, and the superheroes are the only ones who are strong enough to resist the apathy long enough to be able to face the threat. And of course, not all superheroes, because you know that yes. some of them are going to Go look back. out and see all of the people that they can't save. Yes, yes, I love it. Oh. All right. In With some way, the most powerful superheroes would be most at risk. Yes. The like guys with the highest expectations would be, yeah. uh, would be most, uh, most in jeopardy of losing hope. Mm -hmm. Except Superman. Owlman. Owlman would survive. Oh man! Okay, Batman, yeah, Batman, would, I mean, Batman would be like, "Ah, eh, whatever." It's a day at the office, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so with that, I, I literally just got goosebumps thinking about that. By the way, um, but with that said, we're now going to throw in a twist and see just how bad we can fuck things up. So let's go ahead and roll the twist. Uh, aliens did it. Well, that's of that's course. kind of already something. <laughs> well, that's kind of deception. Hold on, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. We're gonna. I'm gonna roll that again. Damn it. Uh, okay. Now add in some treachery. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Okay. Was it caused by a superhero in the beginning? Well, I mean, it was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, inadvertently. Yeah. So, uh, Rich, why don't you take that one? So now add in some treachery. Who's working with this unspeakable horror from beyond space and time? Uh, so the the crazy twist that. Uh, uh, that treachery put in my head was the idea of 
um, a treachery in the other direction. Um, oh. Meaning that it turns out in the superhero world that the guy that you really need to help in this situation is a really nasty, awful supervillain. Oh, nice. Yeah. They're completely the opposite. Oh, that's perfect. Right. Because, oh. you know, it turns out that maybe Dr. Doom is the guy who yeah have have the the magic or the tech that you need to turn against these things uh, so you're treachery I, to their own people in order to save the world yeah mm -hmm. and and maybe here would be something awful right if dr doom's asking prices oh i don't know uh you know western europe or something yes well we had to let uh dr yep. doom have have iberia <laughs> oh, that's great! That's the world from Cthulhu. Yeah, it's very that's very Watchmen, right? You know. Oh yeah, that's that's excellent. That that's adding in some depth that I really love. That's awesome. Uh, we're not going to do much better than that, are we, gentlemen? I don't think so. Um, no. <laughs> so with that, we're now going to roll into uh, the rapid fire portion of this podcast. Rich, my wife really wants to know, is cereal a soup? Is cereal a soup? No. Okay. And yes. what have you been playing recently? Uh, I'm a huge fan of Civilization. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, my that's my big time killer is uh, stomping around in Civilization VI, building empires. Uh, oh God, in terms yeah. of RPG stuff, I play... Uh, uh, I'm in a uh, regular Thursday night uh, Pathfinder game. Uh, I'm in a Wednesday night D&D uh, &D 5e game. Um, and I tend to prefer to play, uh, uh, big bashy brutes. I don't have to think real hard. So maybe I'm working <laughs> yeah. out the frustrations. Absolutely. And tell me about your favorite or most memorable character death. Oh, most memorable character death. Um, Hmm. Uh, I had a, uh, uh, I, I, played a, a dwarven sorcerer uh, up to like 16th level in a campaign that uh, uh, my friend Steve Schubert, one of my fellow Sasquatches, was running. Uh, it was uh, one of the various uh, Rune Lord arcs, I guess, for um, the Pathfinder and Adventure Path. Um, and we uh, uh, had to fight a, a really big, scary red dragon. And I was kind of caught in the open and I managed to save myself from, you know, a uh, hundred points of fire damage or whatever, because his, his breath weapon was, was just like awful. It was like 110, 120 oh. damage, right? Every time he breathed. And I, I used wall of, uh, 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 wall of stone, uh, stone shape or wall of stone to put a hemisphere of stone up and make a little oh. igloo around <laughs> myself. Um, but then I, I, um, yeah, you know, popped out uh, just long enough uh, to throw another big spell at him and hadn't yet ducked back into my little igloo uh, mm. when the dragon caught me in the open and just scorched me. Oh, just oh, it's like I had the igloo. Why did I leave it? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh so igloo. I was safe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. And uh, Nate, uh, why don't you go ahead and plug someone else who is not you? Uh, plug someone else who is not me. Um, hmm. I'm trying to think of uh, who I'm who I'm reading recently that uh, uh, that sticks out. Um, I'll probably butcher the name. Uh, N.K. Jim, uh, Jamison. Uh, her uh, 
uh, forgive me if I pronounce it incorrectly. Um, and let me see if I can get the... Uh... Oh, the Broken Earth series. That's the name of it. Uh, the fifth season, Obelisk Gate, and the Stone Sky. Um, really good, interesting world building. Um, uh, fascinating uh, world uh, premise. Uh, interesting magic system. Uh, I haven't been enjoying those quite a lot. That's that's excellent. And Daniel, go ahead. I got one silly question and one um, serious question. So a serious question first. Um, what is your number one fiction pet peeve or writing pet peeve? Yes. Um, fiction pet peeve. Uh, the author that... Uh, gives us the character description by having somebody stop to regard themselves in a mirror. Oh, I hate that. Oh. <laughs> Awful. And so you know, cheap. it's funny. I see it. I see it again and again and again. And, and sometimes from people who want to know better. Um, God, Jesus. But then, uh, that's, yeah, that, that, that one bugs me. Number two is what is, so since you're the grandfather of feats, um, what is the dumbest feat or proficiency either you invented or that you've come across? Oh, the dumbest one? <laughs> wow, I mean... Just like useless feet that you just had to include, but it's just pointless. Wow. Um, I mean, there are various skill-focused feats that are very unlikely to come into play. Uh, <laughs> right. oh, don't say iron will. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, in some ways, I'm a little bit bummed by uh feats like toughness and iron will and such because they're 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 so boring but um for monsters if you're in a system where monsters get feats too it's super handy to be able to give a monster a feat that that the dm doesn't have to think about how to apply or when to use right mm -hmm. so those those are kind of handy there i don't really think they're dumb they're just they're just unexciting <laughs> um stupidest feat uh, <laughs> there there are definitely some really like crazy narrow feats that are like you know, uh, hey, if you uh, are, uh, you know, fighting on the deck of a ship, you get a plus two on checks to climb ropes and to disarm people. That's a good so, one. Okay. Like, well, All I mean, right. okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I see what, what you were trying to do there, but, but man, how often in the 13 months you're going to play this game, how many sessions are going to involve me standing on the deck of a ship? Right. And then climbing the rope. All right. Uh, Rich Baker, thank you so very much. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell people uh, where they can find you and your work? Uh, well, I, I do have a website, uh, uh, richardbakerauthor.com. Um, um, uh, you can find uh, my uh, military science fiction uh uh, scornful stars I mentioned is, uh, uh, was out, uh, you know, not all that long ago. Uh, although this year sure seems to be getting long. Um, <laughs> it just feels and, longer than it actually is. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, you know, most, uh, uh, good size bookstores will be, uh, uh, have, uh, scornful stars on the shelves. Um, and, uh, I don't know exactly when my, uh, Torg novel will be published, but I, I have the first one. It's called Maelstrom Bridge. Um, it's uh, done and edited, and it's just a matter of uh, uh, when the good folks at Ulysses are going to uh, figure it's uh, uh, the right time and format to put it out in the bookstores. So, All right. 
Uh, Rich Baker, thank you so very much for joining us. It's been a real honor to have you on. Uh, uh, hey, it, it's it's fun to do this. Um, I, I love the, the the exercise, and I'm actually really proud of, <laughs> of what we came up with in a hurry. So, Absolutely. All right. And that was our interview with Rich Baker. Gentlemen, that was that interview was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I obviously can't help but fanboy out just a little bit, considering he wrote two of my favorite adventures and also invented feats, apparently, which I did not know. Oh, um, he's so cool. Like as a guy. Yeah. Yeah. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. That was a really great interview. Um, man, uh, lot, lots of information. Lots of I feel like that was a dense interview. A lot of cool stuff that you can kind of glean from that. What do you what think? What did he say? Uh, Spring Attack was originally called Get Fucked or Sucks to Be You. Sucks, <laughs> to, be you. Sucks to Be You. It I was, wish it was yeah. called Get Fucked. Yeah, yeah. That, that'll, <laughs> Actually, be, that'll be 5.5. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Once once we, the next the next homebrew we do, one of the feats will be Get Fucked, idiot. <laughs> and it's like inspired by Richard Baker. yeah. Oh man! I, I think what's really what's really important about um, Richard Baker as a person in particular is that he represents kind of um, a chunk of knowledge about the early um, days of role playing that is quickly being lost over time. So he is mm. a treasure to us all. <laughs> Absolutely, and not only that, but I mean his longevity. I mean he's made it through second, third, three point mm-hmm. five, fourth, and fifth edition. It's a. I mean, his talk longevity, about perspective. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a testament to his talent and his like design and, and desire to be in this industry. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking cool to be able to learn from him all yeah. the stuff that we did. Plus he met he met or he he got the skinny on Gary Gygax, from what we understand. And I think that'll just about wrap <laughs> it up for this episode. <laughs> Uh, remember that if you want to go ahead and send us an email with a cool world building prompt, you can go ahead and do so by sending an email to worldbuildwithus at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can go ahead and send us a tweet at let's world build, and you can have one of your cool ideas pop up on the show. Like we do every week. Well, not every week. Some weeks we get to interview legendary game designers like Rich Baker. Uh, but That'll just about do it for this episode. Remember that we love you very much and we're going to make it through the week together.